Well, hey, hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, Centered from Reality Podcast, and it is Wednesday morning. I just got back from my next round of rabies shots, so I'm three out of four, so I'm getting closer to the end. They only had to do one today, so, you know, things are looking up. But anyways, looks like it's going to rain today. It's a little bit cooler. And, you know, as is always, uh, I apologize if there's any background noise. I try my best to keep it down, but living on a street in a busy city... Sometimes it's just impossible. Don't ask me how it's like sleeping sometimes, but I've gotten better. Actually, with the AC running overnight, you hear that over the street noise, and so it's kind of a little bit of white noise. So today I want to talk about how the MAGA America First movement actually has their own set of think tanks, their own academic community that's kind of trying to add actual ideas and theory to the MAGA movement. And I'm going to talk about the pros and cons of that. I'm going to talk about some of the characteristics of the I guess you could say new right that's coming out of this. And then I'm going to talk about Biden's poll numbers and what I think he should do about them and why I think he needs to announce soon that he's not going to run. But first, I just want to say it might be a good time to go to Europe. Um, I know if I wasn't in this grad program right now, I would be racing to Europe right now. Actually, I have dreams almost every night about going back to Europe, so maybe it's a sign. I do miss the place a lot, but The EU's single currency actually has dropped below parity against the dollar. And this is the first time in about 20 years. (laughs) Not good for the EU. I guess it's kind of good for us, but it's actually interesting. So they call it dropping below parity basically when they're not one to one, like one dollar to one euro. And the the, the euro right now is as low as uh, 0.9998. So about 99 cents to every one dollar. And it's down almost 12% so far this year. And it's actually too bad for them because from what I've gathered, they actually started off the year doing quite well. But as we know, the war in Ukraine, which has impacted Europe a lot more than it's impacted the United States, and high inflation have just made this just awful for Europe. And, you know, it's really something to put into perspective is like things are not good in the United States and in terms of inflation, oil prices, you know, interest rates are going up, all that jazz. But it's even worse in Europe. And we're seeing that right now with the dollar and I mean, with the euro. And to put this into perspective, it's actually super, super rare for this to happen. The single currency has actually only been from what I've gathered, it's only been below parity once. And it was in 2000. And a fun fact for you, this was before the euro even had released its coins. Because as I recall, the euro started in 98 late 98, early 99. And so the last time it actually hit parity was even before they started releasing coins. And it sank to a record low of 82 cents in October of 2000. And since then, they have not had that issue anymore. So this is not good for them. And I don't think it's that shocking to say that letting the currency go any lower would just push up inflation even worse. Obviously, if the value of the euro is getting worse and inflation is still high, it's not going to be good. It also raises the risk of the price becoming entrenched at a rate well above their target, the the European Central Bank's target of 2%. None of this is good. It's, again, good if you're an American traveling, but it's really actually not a good sign for the global economy and especially the EU economy. What it does worry me is that we're probably going to see massive intervention from the European Central Bank, which they did not want to do. And that will come with a plethora of its own problems, in my opinion. So we're going to have to watch this, but I guess rush to Europe. But then again, the airlines are in such chaos right now that (laughs) maybe I would take that back. Uh, 
so I wish I wish everyone luck. If you're going to go to Europe, good luck with the airlines. But I guess you're going to have a little more spending money. Anyways, um, so about a year ago on the old podcast, I did an episode called F is for Fascism. And I basically just looked into some of America's um, kind of prominent think tanks and how they've taken a downward spiral and we're starting to kind of defend the worser, worser is not a word, the worse instincts or the darker instincts of the MAGA movement. And in the episode, I focused on the Claremont Institute, which is out of uh, Southern California. And honestly, I used to like to read their articles. It's always been more on the right, but or kind of on the further side of the right, I guess I would say. But it's been a renowned conservative think tank. But now it's home to the likes of John Eastman, as who's gained notoriety since uh, his wacky theory about Mike Pence having the ability to not certify the election, sending other slates of electors, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, John Eastman... Um, the Claremont Institute has actually stuck with him after all this chaos, if that tells you anything about their values. Also, Michael Anton, who, who wrote some... He actually was one of the first academics in the think tank world to actually say Trump would be good because the Democrats are worse. I'm going to get into that later. And other MAGA-aligned people. So the Claremont Institute has just kind of fallen off into the deep end, really. And in 2021, I, I talked about how they put out an article called Conservatism, is no longer enough. And it was by this guy, Glenn Elmers, who's nuts, in my opinion. And it's actually kind of an odd and concerning article because it mainly just demonizes anyone who didn't support the MAGA movement. And it kind of equates them as non-Americans. And it kind of seems to outline a case for trying to seize power, even if it's not democratic. And this is, you know, in the months after January 6th, and they still had the balls to publish this, which was quite fascinating to me. And the article starts, I'm just going to read a little bit just to kind of remind people. So the article starts out by saying, in quotes, let's be blunt. The United States has become two nations occupying the same country. Fewer are willing to take the next step and accept that most people living in the United States today, United States today, certainly more than half, are not Americans in any meaningful sense of the term. It goes on later to say, in quotes, some of whose families have been here since the Mayflower, who may technically be citizens of the United States, but are no longer Americans. They do not believe in, live by, or even like the principles, traditions, and ideals that until I recently defined were America as a nation and as a people. And the last part, it reads a little other section. It is not obvious what we should call these citizen aliens, these non-American Americans, but they are something else. And this was a shocking article when I first came across it because it's basically saying you're not American unless you support the America First MAGA movement. And it was the first time I really saw political ideology being used as a way to separate actually saying you're not American if you're a leftist or if you're a Democrat or if you've voted for Biden. And it's it's the first time we've seen this rhetoric kind of used of like Democrats being enemies or animals it's very divisive fascist rhetoric, and that's why I put out that episode, F is for Fascism. And since then, we've actually seen a more refined version of this. It's in the terms of, like, uh, what's his name? J.D. Vance saying that Democrats are bringing over fentanyl to kill Republicans, basically saying Democrats want to kill Republicans. You have Marjorie Taylor Greene saying Florida should never be taken over by atheists, a.k.a. Democrats. The, the rhetoric is escalating, but I think this article is one of the first ones that really used a reputable, reputable source to actually talk about an issue like this. Now, 
I've been looking more and more into it over the last few weeks, and it looks like the national conservative movement, which can be called the America First movement, or MAGA light, or refined MAGA, there's a lot of words we could use for it, has really moved into the think tank space. I would argue they're trying to prepare for a post-Trump Republican party, but want to continue some of the policies that made Trump popular and made the base love him. If that'll actually work, we'll have to see more on that later, but... Obviously, the best way to do this is create new think tanks, you know, not rely on ones like the American Enterprise Institute or the Heritage Foundation, which I I personally like the American Enterprise Foundation or Institute, less the Heritage Foundation. But both of these were mainly against Trump, laissez-faire, neoliberal publications that kind of had to slowly embrace Trump, but it was never genuine. And Trump kind of had to rely on a farm team of people that actually were not really part of his movement, to put it lightly. Like, a lot of the people he first put into his administration were these Reagan types. And Trump is not a Reagan type. I know he likes to bring up Reagan, but his policies are very different, especially in terms of rhetoric. More rhetoric than action. But basically what I think this America First movement is starting to realize is that they need to create their own farm team of researchers and academics to either work in future administrations or to further these policies. And I guess it makes sense, to be honest, because if you want to create a movement that lasts and a class that supports it, you can't just criticize the elites. You actually need to become one and create almost a new elite. And I want to read this. I want to start with an article in The Economist that can kind of help us understand this. It was from last week's episode or issue, not episode. But the article starts with a sign on the door of a conference room in Washington, D.C., and it reads the lies of the ruling class. And of course, guess who it's hosted by? Hint, the Claremont Institute. And I guess they started a new center for the American way of life, which again sounds very authoritarian, but we're not going to get into that right now. And ironically, you know, this goes back to the thing I talked about earlier on how the think tank has started to question the allegiance of non-MAGA Americans. And it's kind of this cultural training on what it means to be American. Very problematic. But anyways, the article goes on to have a conversation with this guy who I mentioned earlier, Michael Anton. And he's a very unique guy who works for the Claremont Institute. I would call him a born-again MAGA. Like, he used to not be MAGA. He was always right-wing, but now he's one of those true guys who believes in the MAGA movement. And he's a former, former national security aide to Trump. And he says, in quotes, in this uh, Economist article, America's elite are not bright, not competent, and not qualified. Then the article goes on to discuss how the conference that the uh, Claremont Institute started is united in favor of economic nationalism, a restrained foreign policy, and restricted immigration. But like, but also many in the room are self-described national conservatives who see the threat to America from the left is the biggest issue. And that's the problem. Because before we go on, I'll just say that I think some of my listeners may be shocked to hear me say this, but... I agree with the national conservatives on some of these issues, like restricted immigration and economic nationalism. I do. But I think the toxic nature of Trumpism has poisoned this movement, and because the movement started with Trumpism, I don't know if it can be saved. And all the good aspects of it are overshadowed by either xenophobia, culture wars, or this right-wing Christian fundamentalism that's becoming more and more authoritarian. Anyways, The Economist sums this up well. It writes, the national conservatives hope to translate their budding movement's energy into a share of that power. 
Thrilled by Mr. Trump's election, but disappointed by his inability to convert unorthodox instincts into action, they are intent on shaping a new conservative elite and agenda. And as I mentioned earlier, some of the issues of Trump were that he had no academia on the right to support him. So now he's found people to support the ideas, people in academia who actually believe this stuff. And to be devil's advocate, maybe it is best that there are actually people studying and writing about these ideas. Maybe I'm being naive and optimistic. Let me know in the comments. But I think that if you're going to have policies and you're going to be a party in the United States, there should be an academic community and there should be experts actually writing and studying and researching this stuff. It's better than just pulling things out of your ass, I guess. So basically, I've been looking around different news sources and... Yeah, the, the former Trump officials, the new right, they are busy building think tanks and advocacy organizations. And they basically want to provide new personnel for the new right. And they want to kind of get rid of the laissez-faire neocons and the Reaganites. And I guess you could say this is kind of the Republican civil war becoming something more like an academic or reformation or enlightenment inside the Republican Party. I don't know if enlightenment's the right term because it's almost like the opposite of that. But anyways, I think I kind of mentioned this earlier, but to elaborate more, this seems to be intended as an evolution of Trumpism. Because let's be honest, at the beginning, his views were kind of a Frankenstein monster that was put together by his lifelong impulses the demands of his base, and fringe nationalist views and people inside, like Stephen Miller and Bannon, etc. And to go back, the orthodoxy of the right before Trump kind of started in the Reagan era, and these views embraced free markets, social conservatism, religious rights, and an assertive foreign policy. That's where then the neocons finally came out of, right? And Obviously, like, yeah, Trump cut taxes. He, of course, had to stick with the donor class in a lot of ways. But these, none of these Reagan-like views were really associated with how Trump spoke and what his base wanted. Remember, a lot of his base were people that were new to politics. Maybe they hated the Bush administration. Romney was atrocious. They are not the Reagan-esque Republicans. Of course, there are Reagan-esque Republicans in the movement, but that's not all of them. And I alluded to this episode um, last week when I was talking about Boris Johnson, but Trumpism is very similar to what Boris Johnson was doing in, in uh, the United Kingdom with the Tory party. Both movements want free markets, but also a strong government role in the economy. They want to cut taxes, but also raise social spending. It's really an interesting contradictory time, I guess, for the new right. And they're kind of trying to hash this out. So... Basically, that's the problem with organizations like the National Review, the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute. They were products of the Reagan era, right? They helped craft foreign policy and domestic policy and put out people like the Bill Crystals, right? And, and the thing is, is those people are no longer accepted by the Trump base. They tried to be on board with the Trump movement. But The Economist and other articles I've seen have clarified that that movement really needs its own publications, and that's what we're seeing. And I've been looking around online to kind of get to the modern moment now, is that there's some interesting examples of these publications that are starting to come out. And some have started in the last couple of years. Some have been around for a little bit, but have gained more traction since the MAGA America First era. And 
I want to start basically with the Claremont Institute. I know I've talked about them for a while, but I want to go back to the Flight 93 election article put out by Michael Anton in 2016. And basically, it's quite alarming because it shows the shift and the justifications for Trump that I think have kind of led to this America First movement. And basically the summary of the article, if you wanted to put it like that, is the election of 2016 will test whether virtue remains in the core of the American nation. He put it out, um, Michael Anton put it out under the pseudonym Publius Decius Mus, and he basically compares the 2016 election to that flight during 9-11, Flight 93, where the passengers basically stormed the cockpit and stopped the flight from going to D.C. to kill more people. It went down in those fields, I want to say, in Pennsylvania. And... <laughs> So let's, let's go with that metaphor and read a little clip from Anton's article. It says in quotes, 2016 is the Flight 93 election. Charge the cockpit or you die. You may die anyways. You are the leader of your party. May make it into the cockpit and not know how to fly or land the plane. There are no guarantees except for one. If you don't try, death is certain. To compound the metaphor, a Hillary Clinton presidency is Russian roulette with a semi-automatic weapon. With Trump, at least you can spin the cylinder and take your chances. And he was one of the first people in the think tank world to basically say that these things were getting existential and that the Republicans basically needed to play with fire to stop the Democrats. And it's something that really always rings alarmingly true to me to this day was that article, because, of course, in hindsight, it looks like uh, the Republicans could not control Trump. And now he's completely fucked up the party. Excuse my language, but he has fucked up the party. And honestly, I would have taken Hillary over that, even though I can't stand Hillary either. But it was interesting because I think he shows the justification for everything to come. So moving on, though, another new publication is the quarterly one that is the American Affairs. And it defends industrial policy and, again, rejects that laissez-faire view from the conservative past. It also is one of the ones that really advocates for using state power to reshape the economy and society. Again, not all bad ideas, but it's formed by people that were either close to Trump, worked with Trump, or support the movement. And see, I get a little bit hesitant. I just want to go on a diatribe here for a second. Is that I get hesitant because I'm for using the state in some forms to shape economic policy, especially with the inequality we're seeing in this country. But the problem is, if it's a movement that sees the other side as problematic, and it's a movement that is already infringing on... on a, personal liberties and stuff like that, it seems more like an authoritarian right-wing regime than actually like a regime that wants to help anyone. Anyways, going on. There is the American conservative, which is kind of a non-interventionalist one that just advocates for, I guess you could say limited support for the war in Ukraine. Now, I've seen some articles that go further than that, but it's kind of just a non-interventionist one, not that harmful, I guess you could say. But then there are the really MAGA ones that are fairly new and seem way more politically charged, if you want to get to that. There's the America First Policy Institute. <laughs> really, uh, I wish it was a tongue-in-cheek <laughs> name, but it's real. And then there's the Center for Renewing America. <laughs> that one's also right across the face. Like, can't you be a little more, like, I don't know, nuanced with your name? Center for Renewing America. It, again, sounds kind of problematic for me, authoritarian. I don't, I'm going to have to read some of their articles. I actually haven't read any of theirs yet. But from what I've gathered, both of these are focused on culture war issues, such as critical race theory, patriotic education. 
not things that tell me that they're wanting to create a healthy, diverse society. (laughs) Then there's Stephen Miller, the far-right immigration hawk. He's actually running one as well, mainly just suing Biden or looking to sue Biden for immigration issues. So it's fun stuff, guys. It's just fun stuff everywhere. Um, And luckily, though, I I have to be fair that not all of these think tanks are pro-Trump. Thank God. There are others that, you know, share some of his movement's values, but think he is a problem. There is one that I actually have read a few articles from. It's called the American Compass. It's relatively new. I think it was founded in 2019, early 2020. And its founder is is a guy named uh, Dr. Cass. Cash, sorry. And he was interviewed and said that, in quotes, there was this white space in the institutional landscape to put out new ideas in a rigorous way. He also clarified that he's no fan of Donald Trump and has called Trump's actions during the election impeachable offenses. The Economist writes that Mr. Cash prefers to work on wonkish proposals in support of the Republican Party's turn towards statism, which have been influential among lawmakers. So like this one, I see that maybe this guy just agrees with actually using populist rhetoric, using the state to fix some of the issues that the private sector cannot. I can get on board with that. I actually really can because while... I feel like all of us basically have contradictory views in our heads. And I have some myself. Like, I believe in local regionalized government. And I believe in capitalism. I think it really pushes for growth, prosperity, and innovation. But at the same time, I look at countries, like especially in Scandinavia, in Canada, and a lot of Europe, and I go, the United States needs more social safety nets. My problem is, is that I think this movement actually looks at using the state for more than just economic goals. And that's where you get into a problem if you have a president like Donald Trump. Anyways, the movement also has funding in people like Peter Thiel, who, you know, Silicon Valley guy, I think one of the early investors in Facebook, but he's really become a hyper-partisan right-wing fundraiser. He's been really involved in Arizona's elections with some fucking nutbags. He's also been involved with J.D. Vance, Marjorie Taylor Greene, He's a big, big guy. He was one of the first ones to really embrace Trump in 2016. Interesting, because he's a gay German man. You know, always fascinating, some of these people that support the Trump-era policies. But then I guess Trump's never actually been really homophobic. It's just the Marjorie Taylor Greens and a lot of the people that came out of the Trump movement. So I don't know. There's so many contradictions. (laughs) Anyways, uh, yeah. So there's money and energy. I kind of call this refined MAGA. That being said... Like I've kind of said a few times, I'm hesitant about these movements that start from the whims of one man's connection to his base and then try to create uh, policies and theories later to catch up. It's just kind of a tough way to start a movement. Also, I cannot help but think that this new right is trying to enter into the publication space, right? It wants to be an elite publication space. Can't this backfire because... The base, the MAGA movement, they don't like academia. They don't like elites. I can't tell you how many MAGA people I've talked to and just told them something that was a truth or a fact, and they're like, oh, you're just one of those liberal elites. It's like, first, I'm not a liberal. Second, I'm not an elite. I just studied this issue. Like, So I don't know if the MAGA base would totally pick up on actually academic communities supporting their policies. It almost seems antithetical to the MAGA movement. And again, I will just reiterate that the sad thing is that I agree with these policies. I agree with a lot of them. The idea of expanding social nets, the idea of trying to make America stronger back home and not just focusing on foreign entanglements. I think if you called the dead ancient Roman Empire, 
or the Roman Republic, they would say they wish they focused more on internal strife than foreign occupancies. It does seem like the era of small government is going away as well. You know, my worries, though, are that this movement is highly influenced by government in intervention involving social issues as well. And it's, again, a fundamentalist religious movement. The economic and political side makes more sense. But the fact that Trump's lies about the election, which he's been doing since 2016, have now put legislators in states that don't believe in counting fair elections, that is worrying to me. Also, the fact that they've overturned Roe v. Wade. There's an anti-abortion stance. Lauren Boebert has said that she doesn't believe in the separation of church and state. Marjorie Taylor Greene calls racist evil, I mean, atheists evil, and she doesn't want Florida, or Georgia to be taken by Democrats. These are the people that would be part of this movement, and they're not well. They're not well at all. Even J.D. Vance, who used to be kind of mentally well, who I actually met once back in the day, he's crazy now. It seems like a new right that embraces statism, but also seems intent on using this to enforce the bedroom and the classroom as well, is not a good one. In a sense, I almost think this is why the Republican Party has always needed this libertarian influence in it, is because the libertarians seem to keep the authoritarian, the, the authoritarian social side in check. And right now it seems like that authoritarian fundamentalist side has taken over the party. And yes, maybe it'll help inequality, but also what will it do to human rights, liberties, and what will it do to marginalized communities? So there's a lot of questions here, but I'm going to start reading some of these, some of these publications just to kind of see what's happening here. But I just, I just think that Flight 93 article from Michael Anton has really change the party because I do think a lot of people, and I talk to just average Republicans, people that used to be Romney supporters, Bush supporters, they now think Democrats are the biggest threat to this country. And, and if you talk to a lot of Democrats, they think Republicans are the biggest threat to this country. We can't go walking around in this country thinking the other side is the enemy. Because believe me, it's not. It's, it's corporate greed. It's inequality. It's ideas like what is, are spreading in Russia. There's a lot bigger issues. And I just don't know if this movement or the far left would be helpful. And actually, speaking of the far left, the next thing I do want to talk about is Biden. <laughs> you know, it just seems like Biden is, and I don't want to piss off people, but I think he's just too old to be president. And I'm not trying to be ageist here, but in 94, there was a shift in politics under Clinton. Clinton understood his mandate and actually did quite a good job other than his moral issues. Barack Obama in 2010 after the midterms made a shift because he understood that people were not happy. Will Biden make a shift after the midterms if, if they get their asses kicked? I don't know because I don't think he's really that good at politics anymore. I don't think he's able to shift. And it's just not looking good for Biden right now. And I know he keeps saying he's going to run. He keeps saying he's going to run in 2024. My theory is that the only reason he says that is because he's afraid that Kamala Harris would be worse. And so he's defending her from saying she would run. Because if she said she would be the front runner, they would get their asses kicked in the midterms, and rightfully so. I always thought she was a horrible choice. And now she is, I guess, the farm team or the runner-up 
I it's it, it's troubling, and it seems like Americans are also getting unhappy. And also Biden, he's slow to he's been slow to make decisions. They've been debating student loan forgiveness for almost two years now. Abortion. They knew Roe v. Wade was going to happen. They did nothing about it. They haven't codified protections of gay marriage because there are worries that Obergefell could be overturned, though some of my friends that study law say that might be a little bit extreme. But anyways, like the Biden administration, yeah, they've done a couple of good things. I think he's done a good job at unifying the world about Ukraine. That's one of the things. But I just, I just don't think he's prepared for the job. He was supposed to beat Trump. He did that. Good job, man. But now it's almost like things have escalated and he really just, he's lied, which I, I thought we were going back to the truth. They blamed infl inflation on Putin. It's just, just not true. And I, I just feel like the media again has, or was, now things are changing, but they were covering him as someone different. And look, it looks like people are <laughs> over it as well because the Hill has an article on this Politico morning consult poll, which was released on Tuesday, so yesterday. And according to it, 29% of voters said that they believe Biden should, want, uh, should run for president in 2024. So 30% basically. And a whopping 64% said he should not run for president, or yeah, run for re-election. And we have to remember a few months ago, it was like 50% approval and then 40 and now <sighs> he has one of the worst approval ratings in the last century i think the the worst one if, if i'm looking at the correct numbers here and look it's 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 worrying and this poll also comes after there was a new york times siena college survey which came out on monday that found 64 percent of democrats said they would prefer a different candidate over biden and I mean, this is maybe something somewhat promising. I, I mean, it's, it's a bad state of affairs, but the same poll also showed that additionally 44% of all respondents said they would cast their vote for Biden if the election were today. So maybe that's enough to beat like Trump if it's one-on-one, -on -one. because as I've seen, Trump is also not popular, which I'm going to talk about more on Friday. But I guess tr uh, Biden could maybe beat Trump right now if it was those two, but it's a sad state of affairs when we have those two who are both quite unpopular nationally. And you know what? I'm just going to say it. I think Biden needs to tell the American people soon that he is going to be a one-term president. He can say something like, hey, I beat Trump. I at least have tried to bring the country back from the cuckoos, but it is time for me to do my job and not run again. And do you know why I think he should do it sooner than later? Because then it would give other people in the Democratic Party a chance to maybe consider running. Because right now, it seems like Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg are the two options. And I think they're both atrocious options that would do atrociously in an election, much worse than Biden. And that's the thing, is if those two are the, the runner-ups or the ones to follow in his path, then of course Biden's going to feel like he needs to run again. So why don't you announce you're stepping back after this election or after the midterms, make an announcement, and I think give someone younger and ready. You know what I mean? So I just think the Democrats, things are not looking good right now. Now, I did read today that the midterms may be closer, again, because of issues like guns 
and abortion. Those are things uh, Americans are on edge. And I think the midterms could be interesting. I think Democrats could maybe keep the Senate. But again, we do not want Trump back in power. And I'm going to talk more about that on Friday, the, the Republican side of the 2024 election. But we just can't have a Republican president right now with their views on elections, culture war issues, on the trans community. It's just not the type of party we can have right now. And so there are, I think the Democrats need to really look in the mirror and say, do we really want Biden? And if not, let's give someone else a chance. Anyways, as always, thank you for listening. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, YouTube, Podbean, Spotify, whatever else I've missed. Have a great rest of your day. And uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully there'll be good news to report on Friday. But, you know, <laughs> that seems to be not too prevalent.